This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 13. We'll be reading Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you once more gathered as your people in your house to praise your great and holy name. We recognize what a privilege it is to be invited into this family, to be invited into the people of God so that we can do this. Lord, you've set aside this day, one in seven, for us to rest in you. We thank you for that. We can get so caught up in the things of life and and the busyness of life. We need this day. We need this time to set our focus on you because you are the one who sustains us. Not just when we gather, not just on Sundays, not just when we gather for Bible studies or small groups or whatever the case may be, but you are the God who sustains us every moment of our life. And yet we so often forget that. We feel like we're self-sufficient handling things on our own, operating in our own wisdom. I pray that you would use this morning and this time, this day of rest, for us to refocus our sights on you, to remember that you are the God who provides. You are the God who sustains. You are the God who gives life in every area. That means that you see us in our our sin. You see us in our struggle and our suffering. You see us in our sickness, and you see us as we move toward death. And as we deal with the death of our loved ones, there are so many things in this life every day that can pull our focus away, that can cause us to despair and cause us to doubt and fear. Lord, I pray that you would remind us this morning that you are the God who comforts us, who is with us, who dwells among us, who for those who belong to Christ, your spirit dwells in us. Lord, remind us of that and please give us the comfort that we need. Lord, I pray for those people who are hurting deeply and those hurts are real and significant i pray that you would comfort their hearts comfort their spirits remind them of your deep great enduring and steadfast love for your people 
Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with, with health issues, whether they're minor or, or very serious. I pray that you would heal their bodies and that you would give them comfort and peace and relief from pain and struggle in the midst of it. But we know that often you use those things and those struggles and those difficulties to shape us and mold us according to your will. So I pray most importantly that in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of those illnesses and those diseases, that their eyes would be fixed on you, that you would use those circumstances to sanctify your people, to grow us, to make us more and more like Jesus Christ every day of our lives. Once again, we thank you for, uh, for this church. We thank you for the work that you've been doing here in this body that you continue to do. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for uh, the other churches that are meeting around uh, down river in the Detroit area and Michigan to the to the country and around the world all of your saints who are meeting to worship you sometimes we forget that we're part of of the wider body of Christ we're connected to our brothers and sisters around the world and what a wonderful thing that is I pray that you would build them up today in your word as the word is preached faithfully I pray that you would sanctify and encourage your church both here and around the world. Lord, as we're here to sit under the preaching of your word, I pray that you would be with Pastor Aaron as he preaches. I pray that his words would be not more or less than you have for him to say, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word from the scriptures and apply those to our hearts. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Show us where we need to bring our lives into alignment with what you teach us in the scripture. Lord, I pray that you would shape us into the people that you want us to be, and I pray that your name, that the name of Christ, would be glorified in this place, that you would be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, First Pratt. If I could be so bold this morning, I'm going to make the assumption that you're similar to me. In this regard, we all have that neighbor or that relative who gets under our skin. And the truth be told, when something happens to them, with a wink of an eye, we can say something like, couldn't happen to a better guy. The truth is, each and every one of us has that kind of attitude deep down inside. And if we're not careful, it can become easy for us to sit in judgment over others. We can judge the woman whose kids are not listening to her at the store in front of us. We can judge the man who's holding up the sign asking for money on the side of the road. Uh, we can judge the neighbor by the way their house looks the neglect, the, the unkept yard, and we begin to judge each of these individuals. We can make an assumption based upon their action or inaction of who they are and why their situation is such. When calamity strikes someone, the truth be told, we're quick to assume they did something to deserve it. If we look at the text of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we can be assured we're not alone. That's why I can make that assumption about you as I make that assumption and knowledge of myself. See, we see that in John's Gospel. In John chapter 9, 
the disciples ask Jesus about a man who was born blind. They ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Something bad happened in his life. Surely somebody sinned to bring this on. Or how about in the book of Job? Job, who experienced in many ways the calamities of life that go beyond even our understanding, and one of his friends, on more than one occasion, leaned over to Job and said something like this, I've seen it, and I know it, that those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Job, surely you did something to bring this calamity upon your life. Universally, it seems to be agreed by most, if not all, that when bad things happen, they happen to people who deserve it. But when Jesus is asked a question, specifically about calamity, he makes a very different point. A point that we see in our text that I want to drive home to you this morning. Do me a favor and look in your Bibles or your, or your iPhones or whatever it is you have the Word of God on. I want you to look at verse 3. Of Luke 13, verse 3 of the verse of chapter 13. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Drop down to verse 5. Again, Jesus says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Jesus is making a point as he draws into the calamity of life as he focuses on the calamity that happens to individuals. And Jesus is saying, those calamities, those events, hear this church, are warning signals for all of us. They're not just for those to whom it happened. But they're actually warning lights for each and every one of us. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice the you. The you is every single one of us. Not some of us, but every one of us. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Jesus, right from the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, goes around telling people they need to repent and believe. As Ed stood and prayed with and for the congregation. In our prayer of confession, he reminded us, the prophets of old, the disciples, they all preached a message of repent. See, it's without repentance that we only experience judgment. It's without repentance that we only experience judgment. Friends, hear me this morning. There's examples of suffering that our text provides. There's two specific events. The first is one that the people bring up to Jesus. It's a tragedy of the Galilean worshipers. Look at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. A couple things we need to draw attention to is that the individuals they're talking about, the calamity that they're describing is actually about Galileans who were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover. They were coming to make their sacrifices. They were coming to worship God. And while they were there, 
They're cut down so much so in the very act of worship that their own blood is mingled with the sacrifice. That's the way it's described in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, who were these Galileans? We're not told much. We don't give a background to whether or not they were rebels or, or what was their cause. But one thing we know is Galileans, they were outsiders. They were country folk. They were probably more traditional in their views. But they came into Jerusalem to fulfill the pilgrimage, the, the responsibility they had for the worship of God. And there they were struck down by Pilate and the Romans. As Jesus hears them talking about the Galileans this way, look what he asks in verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think because of the calamity and the tragedy of their life that they must have been really wicked? That's what Jesus is asking. Do you think because of what happened to them, they must have been really vile? The onlookers for sure thought there was divine displeasure because those worshipers must have been worshiping God improperly. Maybe their hearts weren't really committed to God. So God allowed the Romans to annihilate them, to shed their blood. The onlookers thoroughly thought that it was because they weren't right with God, therefore their worship was judged. But Jesus asked, do you think that they were worse than all the other Galileans? As Jesus asks this question, he gives another example. Look at verse 4. He talks about 18, the tragedy of 18 to whom the Tower of Siloam falls upon them. As you look at that 18 and you hear Jesus' story, he mentions the fact that all died, all were killed. Look what he says at the end of verse 4. Do you think that those were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? You see what Jesus did there? He, he took the, the, the narrowness of it being about Galileans, which Jesus was, because Jesus was like them on his, on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the, uh, the unleavened bread feast. And Jesus now turns it about the, those in Jerusalem, the tower that was in Jerusalem on the southeastern wall that fell down and crushed some 18 men who were of Jerusalem. Do you think those men... We're more wicked than everyone else, Jesus asks. See, Jesus is really getting at the heart of the issue, isn't he? Jesus going after a horrific event that was remembered. Again, we don't know the details. Maybe it was the building of the tower. Or maybe it was unstable when it was built, and all of a sudden, over time, it deteriorated, and 18 bystanders were killed. Or maybe after one of the attacks on the city, it had been weakened, and People were just passing by, and 18 were crushed. Whatever the event, everyone seemed to remember, for nobody cried out, when did that happen? We don't remember that. There was a clear understanding that 18 souls had died, and Jesus asks, were they worse than everyone else? Friends, that's the heartbeat of the question in our passage. Why do bad things happen to certain people? Is it because they're worse than others? Yet when Job, who stood in the midst of great suffering, 
after being rebuked by friend after friend after friend, raised his hands to God and said, why? Listen to God's response in Job 38. God says to Job in the midst of his suffering, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. What God is doing there is he's reminding Job who's really in charge. He's reminding Job that he and he alone as God is the one who's sovereign. And yet, oftentimes we act like God. We act like we know the mind of God. We see tragedy and yet we miss the point because we assume it's simply those individuals that sinned against God. They offered wrong worship. But we miss that those Tragedies are warning signals for each and every one of us. Church, I ask you this morning, do you hear the sirens scream? The warnings all around us calling us to repent. Reminding us of the need to see that God and God alone is ruler over all. See, the problem is we have foolishness in our thinking. If we're honest for a moment, as we look into the mirror of our own lives, we all think we deserve better than we do. We all assume that we're not as bad as somebody else. Maybe that weird uncle or that individual who lives next door that annoys everyone on the block. We just naturally assume we're one of the better people. That's not what Jesus said. In verses 2 and 4, again, Jesus asked, Do you think those who tragedy struck are worse than you? Do you think the reason they suffered is because they were worse than you? Church, we misunderstand judgment. In fact, even the word Jesus uses for those calamities, for those tragedies, isn't judgment. He uses the word perish. He's playing on their idea of physical torment, physical suffering. And he says, there's something greater than physical suffering. There is spiritual suffering. The play on the word that captures Eternal suffering is the word hell. It's the word Gehenna, which is derived from a valley in which wicked Israelites were accustomed to practicing horrible idolatry to an idol named Molech. And what they would do is they would take their innocent, right, little children, notice I'm playing on that, the children who've not done anything, and they would take them. And they would lay them in the arms of this idol, Molech, and see them burn. As they were worshiping God. And as this caught on, because of the beating of the drums that were used, and the, and the playing of the flutes, and the noise that was made to cover up the screams of those children, the place became known as hell. And today we get our idea of hell from there place of torment, the place of screams, the 
place of absolute wickedness. Hell in Scripture is described as the gnawing worm, the unquenchable fire, the outer darkness, the gnashing of teeth, the everlasting fire, the lake of fire and brimstone, the place of eternal judgment, the lake in the winepress of wrath. Hell is the wrath to come. One theologian by the name of Francis Turretin, he wrote the magnitude and the intensity of the punishments are so great as can be neither conceived by the mind nor expressed with words. And yet today, the opinions of hell stand in stark contrast. One will say, I don't believe in hell. Hell's a fictitious place that people make up to scare you into certain behavior. Others say, oh, I do believe in a hell. Hell's for wicked people like Adolf Hitler, not for good people like us. But that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible is very clear that God created hell as a place of judgment for sinners. That's why Jesus says in verse 3 and verse 5 that we need to repent because hell exists for all sinners. And we are sinners. Friends, understand that Jesus is correcting the view of the masses. Jesus is helping to turn the, the focus in on the reality that we are all sinners and we are all doomed to perish in the lakes of fire and hell forever for our sin. Why, you ask? That seems so overboard, like God went over the top to create a place where people burn in hell forever. Why would he do that? Let me help you understand what sin is. To understand what sin is, we need to understand who God is. God is holy, without sin, perfectly righteous, and perfectly just. And any who sin against him deserve judgment. Because God is eternal, any sin against him is an eternal offense. Did you hear me this morning? Any sin against an eternal God is an eternal offense. And therefore, what does it deserve? But eternal, everlasting judgment. And yet in the midst of that, what are we told? Repent. Repent. What is repentance? Repentance, as Ed so clearly stated, isn't just lip service. Uh, repentance is more than simply saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is a matter of the heart. It's a change in behavior. Many have said it this way. Repentance begins with confession, admitting it involves contrition, hatred, and sorrow over sin, hatred of that sin, but it also includes a change, a turning from sin. And friends, that's where many people stop. So I ask you this morning, do you get Jesus' point? That you are no better and I am no better than anyone else and we all truly need to repent. That's the message Jesus has 
That's the correction Jesus is making over the way we view the world. To help with this illustration and this teaching, Jesus offers a parable. Something that comes alongside to to aid us in our understanding. He tells a parable of a fig tree. A fig tree which was owned by a landowner, but it bared no fruit. For three years that tree grew, and for three years there was no fruit whatsoever. The landowner came to it, looked and examined it, saw if there was any hope of fruit, and decided it was better to cut it off, to cast it away, to use the ground for something else. But right in the midst of that, There was a gardener who worked for the landowner, a vine dresser, if you will. And we see in his character mercy. The vine dresser moved with compassion for the tree in the vineyard which he tends, says to the landowner, give the tree one more year. Give the tree one more year. He appeals for the tree. Give the tree just one more year. As I hear those words of the vine dresser, I'm reflecting upon the words of Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 32, the the people of Israel had seen God deliver them from bondage, part the Red Sea, swallow the Egyptian army, deliver them and protect them with food daily. And as Moses went up the mount to receive the Ten Commandments, the people stayed on the ground Worshipping a golden calf. God in his anger and fury speaks about obliterating those people. Those stiff-necked, hard-nosed people. But in the midst of that, Moses speaks and intercedes for them. Church, don't miss that. The beauty of what Moses does there is seen in the mercy of God's response. As God shows long-suffering as he's raising up this man of God to lead the people of God. He's he's having his heart sewed together with the people. But Jesus is clearly pictured in the vine dresser. In this vine dresser, we see the one who puts in the work. Notice his, his, his response to the owner of the land. He says, I will dig around it. Uh, I will fertilize it. I'll do the work. Just give me one more year, one more year with this tree to let the sun shine and the water and to, for it to grow and to flourish. And then, if no figs, you're right in cutting it down. Friends, don't miss that we hear that judgment is coming even in the mercy of the vine dresser, if no figs, then you're just in cutting it down. That judgment may not come today, but that judgment will come. That judgment may not come in a year, but that judgment will come. That judgment of God may be held back for a time, but judgment is on its way. And Jesus is saying, we all need to wake up to recognize we are all sinners and in need of his grace. Friends, we look at the vine dresser and we see such mercy. His willingness to tend and care 
for that tree, interceding on its behalf for one year. It reminds me of a story of a king, a king whose kingdom was continually robbed. Every day, the king was given a report of yet another break-in. And so the king made it clear that when the criminal was caught, he would suffer. Yet the crimes continued. And every day, the king's frustration grew, his anger grew, and his promise of punishment grew. Finally, one day, a messenger approached the king, shaking. The king said, what is it? What's the message? Why are you shaking? Speak to me. The messenger, finally gathering himself, said, king, we know who the thief is, and I fear to tell you. Who is it, he demanded. Who is it? Who is it that would steal from me and rob my kingdom? I demand to know his name. The messenger looked at the king and said, it's one of your own children. Everyone in that room waited to see what the king's response would be. Would it be full of justice or full of mercy? The king, true to his word, told the punisher to administer, administer the punishment. But as soon as the child was tied up, the king got down from his, his throne, derobed, and stood over his child. And the king said, strike me. In that moment, we see both the king's justice and the king's mercy. Church, that is a picture of the gospel. That is a picture of Christ, the vine dresser, who intercedes on our behalf, who does all that is necessary. God in his love sent his own son to be our savior. And Jesus came and did all the work that was necessary for our saving because we weren't innocent. But we were born in sin. And our hands, our tongues, and our desires sin com completely and regularly. Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it completely. Jesus came to do what we needed done. And Jesus did it perfectly so that he could pay a debt we could not pay. Our only call is to respond and repent. Jesus' ministry began with that call. Repent. And it continues to go forth. Each of us is called to trust what the word of God says, to believe what it says about who we are and who Jesus is. We're called to respond in repentance, which means making confession, having contrition in our heart, and to change our behavior. The key point of this is that now is the time to respond. That's the point of Jesus' message. Do not presume upon his grace. Tomorrow may be too late. The call is to repent. But there's a secondary point. It underlines Christ's disciples recognizing that Jesus is that chief vine dresser. And we have been called to be vine dressers like him. For we have been given a work to do as well, church. We have been called to be his witnesses. 
we have been called to go and to declare to those who are on the highway of hell that repentance in Christ alone is their only hope. Friends, Jesus is clear. We are not better than anyone else. Each and every one of us is a sinner. Judgment awaits sinners, and this is real, and this is serious. And each and every one of us needs to repent, or according to Scripture, we will perish. But thank God for his mercy, for his long-suffering. We're not to presume upon tomorrow because we are to respond today. For today is the day of salvation. As the prophet Isaiah said, he said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Praise God for a merciful God, but understand he is a just Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. And Lord, help us to respect your justice. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room who does not know the forgiveness that is made available for those who repent. Lord, may we taste and see the goodness of a God who is long-suffering, a God who walks with us and sent his own son to die for us. God, may we truly be worshipers of you. May we hate what you hate and love what you love. God, transform our hearts. Break the, the stiff neckedness of each of us. Help us not to think we're better than our neighbors, but Lord, help us to have a heart for our neighbors. And Lord, I pray that we would be your witnesses, that we would be busy doing the work of the vine dresser in the little gardens you've placed us, for you are the chief vine dresser who's done all that's necessary for real growth and real fruit to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.